Hey everybody, this is Heather from Crimezilla, and you're listening to the Crimezilla podcast, the show that explains true crime in a deeper light. And for the people who love true crime, this is your podcast. Hello, everybody, and thank you for coming back to listen to my second episode, you guys. Whoop, whoop. Second episode. I couldn't be more happier. I'm so excited. I'm, um, my heart is so full, you guys, with, um, just the support and the love and all the messages I've been getting on saying how well I'm going to do. It's kind of intimidating, but I'm, um, yeah, I'm feeling good. I'm excited. So, um, I just wanted to remind everybody that there is a donations page on my website, crimezillapodcast.ca. I am a sole creator of this podcast, you guys. So I'm doing all the editing, the audio, the research, um, everything. I do it all by myself. It takes a lot of time and money to be doing all of this. Um, so anything that you donate is greatly appreciated and my heart goes out to you. If you can't, I totally understand. Um, we're all in hard times right now. So yeah. So you guys grab your beer, your wine, your cocktails, and let's get into some true crime y'all. Sounds right.
Okay, guys, thank you for coming and listening to Crimezilla. I am doing a serial killer from Canada case today, which is really interesting. There's lots of information on this case, so I might be doing this in two parts. I might do uh, part one I would post on a Monday, part two I would probably post on a Wednesday, but we'll see how far we get with this. Um... So this case was suggested by Taylor on Facebook. Thanks, girl. I can't believe how much information is on this. I actually, until you said her name, I had no idea that this lady even existed, which is shocking to me. I must be in another dimension because I can't believe that I never heard of this lady. But, yeah. So let's get into it, you guys. Sounds right. Okay, guys, so I might do a horrible job in last names here. I, I've been reading up on this case, and I've been trying to go with it, and I, uh, I might, yeah, I might kill him. I might just totally cause dishonor to myself and to all of you that are listening and actually know about this case, and I'm sorry. But, um, yeah, even sounding out, I'm like, Homolka. Homo loca. Like, I can't. I don't even know. But I'll try my best. Okay, so this is the case about Ken and Barbie. So Barbie meets Ken. Ken goes insane, has all these sex things, and it's, yeah. Um, disclosure on this, it's... Um, really horrific there's teenage murder it's um yeah just if you don't like um sex and teenage murder then probably not a case for you <laughs> um so Carla Leanne Holmolka also known as Carla Leanne Teal see I got that one right yay me and Leanne Bordelais, Bordelas, I'm just going to call her Carla Teal, okay, was born on May 4th, 1970 in Port Credit, Ontario, Canada. She is known as one of Canada's women serial killers. She attracted worldwide attention when she was convicted of manslaughter following a plea bargain in 1991 and 1992 rape and murders of two Ontario teenage girls 
which we will soon get into. And she also um, got charged with the rape and death of her sister, Tammy. Um, Carla's early life was typical. She loved to draw and expressing her love for animals. She started reading Hardy Boys and Nancy Drew at the age of 12 and became obsessed with crime. She was the eldest of Carol and Dorothy, so mom and dad, and she had two sisters named Lori and Tammy. The family lived in St. Catharines, Ontario. Carla began working part-time at a pet shop while attending Sir Winston Churchill Secondary School. As she grew up, she became harsher in her ways and enjoyed scaring her friends. During her high school days, she was known for not caring about what other people thought of her. Which I feel like I can connect with a little bit. I feel like there's parts of me in some of these people that are like, oh man, I'm so like that. But like, I'm not crazy enough to do what they do. Or like, mentally unstable. It's just, yeah. She later took a similar job at the Martindale Animal Clinic from where she sold drugs that were used in her crimes. Um, while attending a convention in Toronto on October 17th, 1987, Carla went to a restaurant where she met Paul Bernando when she was 17 years old and he was 23. Paul proposed to Carla on December 24th. Carla and Paul were known as the Ken and Barbie killers. They were partners in crime, you guys. Literally, what they did is disgusting. Um, they're like the Bonnie and Clyde, but way worse. They were arrested in 1993. In 1995, Paul was convicted of two teenage murders and received life in prison and a dangerous offender designation. The full maximum sentence allowed in Canada. During the 1993 investigation, Carla stated to investigators that Paul had abused her and that she had been an unwilling accomplice to the murders. The result was that she struck a deal with prosecutors for a reduced prison sentence of 12 years in exchange for a guilty plea of manslaughter. 12 years for killing somebody is not enough time. Our system is so fucked up. It is wrong. Like, wrong. I can't believe it. 
a petty crime like selling dope back in the day would get you like life in prison, but killing somebody gets you 20? How the fuck does that make sense? Or in this case, it gets you 12. It makes no sense. Ugh. Videotapes of the crimes were later found that demonstrated that she played a bigger role than what she let on. As a result, the deal that she had struck with prosecutors was dubbed in the Canadian press the deal with the devil. They're calling her the devil, which I agree with. Public outrage about Carla's plea deal continued until her high-profile release from prison in 2005. Following her release from prison, she settled in the province of Quebec where she married and gave birth to a baby boy and legally changed her name to Leanne Teal. In 2012, a journalist, Paula Todd, found Carla living in Guadalupe under the name Leanne Bordelis with her husband and three children. So nobody really knows where she is because she keeps changing her name. And I mean, I wouldn't want people to know who I was or where I was if I did what she did too, because you would not be able to live a normal life out in public. I mean, if this woman was living in our town, I would be outraged and worried and terrified and my children would not be fucking leaving home if somebody like this lived in our town. Ugh. I don't get it, you guys. I just don't. Like, oh, people are frustrating to me. Um, so we are going to talk about the victims and what happened the day that, um, Paul and Carla decided to ruin these people's lives. Um, by 1990, Paul was spending a large amount of time with Carla's family who seemed to really like him. He was engaged to their oldest daughter and flirted constantly with the youngest one, which we will get to. He had not told them that he had lost his job as an accountant and instead was smuggling cigarettes across the U.S.-Canada border. So yay for you because you're killing it. Oh, boy. Um, he had become obsessed with Carla's sister, Tammy. Paul would peep into Tammy's window and enter her room and masturbate while she slept. Can you imagine waking up to that, you guys? Like, you're just sleeping, having a good old sleep and dreaming, and you look over and there's some fucking creep in your bedroom. Like, that is my biggest fear is waking up to somebody in my fucking bedroom that I don't know. Like, she knew him, but, like, still. Like, what the hell are you doing in my bedroom? Get out. The most disgusting part about this is that Carla helped him by breaking the blinds in her sister's window to allow Paul to access it. In July, Paul took Tammy across the border to get beer for a party. While there, Paul later told Carla that Tammy and him got drunk and started making out. According to Paul's testimony at his trial on July 24th, 1990, Carla laced spaghetti sauce with crushed Valium she had stolen from her employer at the vet clinic that she was working at. She served dinner to her sister, who soon lost consciousness. Paul began to rape Tammy while Carla watched. 
Over the summer, Paul supplied Tammy and her friends with gifts, food, and sodas that had a film and a few white flecks on flakes on top. Sorry, you guys. This reminds me of like the guy that your parents tell you to stay away from. The guy in like that creepy van that that's it doesn't say candy, free candy on the side of the van, but it probably should because like he's gonna take you away from your family and probably kill you that's what this guy reminds me of six months before their 1991 wedding carla stole a drug from the animal clinic called halothane on december 23rd 1990 carla and paul administered sleeping pills to the 15 year old tammy in a rum and eggnog cocktail after tammy was unconscious Carla and Paul undressed Tammy, and Carla applied a halothane-soaked cloth to her sister's nose and mouth. And you guys, I've looked at the pictures from this case. Um, like, they... It's bad. Like, the fact that her whole face was burnt from this halothane is horrible. And not even just that picture, but I've seen most of the pictures and it's it's disgusting and it's scary to think that there's people out there that could do that especially in your own family like you don't expect your sister to drug you and do all this Carla wanted to give Tammy's virginity to Paul for Christmas as according to her because Paul was disappointed by not having been Carla's first sex partner with Tammy's parents sleeping upstairs, the pair videotaped themselves as they raped her in the basement. Tammy began to vomit and the pair tried to revive her, then called 911, but not before they hid all the evidence. They dressed Tammy and moved her into the basement bedroom. A few hours later, Tammy was pronounced dead at St. Catherine's General Hospital without having regained consciousness. Despite the pair's behavior, vacuuming and washing the laundry in the middle of the night, and despite the presence of a chemical burn on Tammy's face, 
The coroner and family accepted the pair's versions of events. I would be questioning that 100,000%. Like, if my child comes home from daycare or, like, at a friend's house and has a scratch on his face, I'm like, where the hell did you get that and why is it on your face? What happened? But this girl has a chemical burn on her face and no one's questioning that. The official case of Tammy's death was choking on her own vomit after consumption of alcohol. So, yeah. That was just the first case. So, early morning on June 15th, 1991, Paul took a detour through Burlington about halfway between Toronto and St. Catharines to steal license plates. He found Leslie... Mahaffey, the 14-year-old had missed her curfew after attending a funeral, was locked out of her house, and had been able to find anyone with whom she could stay overnight. It was then that Paul left his car and eyed up his victim. Paul approached her and told her he was looking to break into a neighbor's house. Unfazed, she asked if he had any cigarettes. Kind of like, yeah, you're weird, but do you have a cigarette, please? As Paul led her to his car, he blindfolded her, forced her into the vehicle, and drove her to Port Dalhousie, where he informed Carla that they had a playmate. That's disgusting. Paul and Carla videotaped themselves torturing and sexually abusing her, all while listening to Bob Marley and David Bowie. At one point, Paul said, you're doing a good job, Leslie, a damn good job. Then he added, the next two hours are going to be determined what I do to you. Right now, you're scoring perfect. That sends shivers down my spine. That is so creepy. Oh, it's just, oh, like it literally sends shivers down my spine, you guys. On another segment of tape, played at Paul's trial, the assaulted escalated. Leslie cried out in pain and begged Paul to stop. In the crown description of the scene, uh, her hands were bound with twine. Later, Leslie told Paul that her blindfold seemed to be slipping, an anonymous development as it signaled the possibility that she might be able to identify both of her tormentors if permitted to live. The following day, Paul claimed that Carla fed her a lethal dose of Halcyon, but Carla claimed that instead Paul strangled her to death. The pair put her body in the basement. The following day, the... Um, Homolka, Homolka? (laughs) See guys, I'm having issues. (laughs) Carla's family had dinner at the house. After they left, um, their daughter Lori was there and she left. Paul and Carla decided the best way to dispose of the evidence would be to dismember Leslie and encase each piece in cement. Paul bought a dozen bags of cement at a hardware store the following day. He kept the receipts, which would prove damaging at his trial. Which, 
shows to me that he really wasn't that worried about getting caught. Like, he didn't think that anyone would find this girl or anything. Um, Paul used his grandfather's circular saw to cut the body. Paul and Carla then made numerous trips to the dump um, to dump the cement blocks in Lake Gibson, 18 kilometers south of Port Dalhousie. At least one of the blocks weighed 200 pounds and proved beyond the pair's patience or abilities to sink. It rested near the shore where a father and son on a fishing expedition discovered it on June 29th, 1991. And uh, they prove by identifying her through her dental records. On the afternoon of April 16th, 1992, Paul and Carla were driving through St. Catharines to look for potential victims. It was after school hours on the day before Good Friday. Students were still going home, but by the large... Uh, going home, but by and large, the streets were empty. As they passed Holy Cross Secondary School, a main Catholic high school in the city's north end, they spotted Kirsten French. A 15-year-old student was walking briskly to her nearby home. The couple pulled into the parking lot of nearby Grace Lutheran Church and Carla got out of the car, map in hand, pretending to need assistance. As French looked at the map, Paul attacked from behind, brandishing a knife and forcing her into the front seat of their car. 
From the back seat, Carla controlled the girl by pulling down her hair. French took the same route home every day, taking about 15 minutes or so to get home in order to attend to her dog's needs. Soon after she should have arrived, her parents became convinced that she had met with foul play and notified police. Within 24 hours, Niagara Regional Police had assembled a team and researched the area along her route and found several witnesses who had seen the abduction from different locations, thus giving police a fairly clear picture. So, if you see somebody that's getting kidnapped, why aren't you calling the police to begin with? Like, if you see that someone is in possible danger, call 911. In addition, one of... Kirsten's shoes recovered from the parking lot unscored the seriousness of the abduction. Over the three days of the Easter weekend, Paul and Carla videotaped themselves as they tortured, raped, and sodomized Kirsten French, forcing her to have large amounts of alcohol and to behave submissively to Paul. At Paul's trial, Crown Prosecutor Ray Houlihan said that Paul always intended to kill her because she was never blindfolded and she was capable of identifying her captors. While Paul was out buying pizza on April 18th, he was spotted by Carrie Patrick, whom he had stalked the previous month. Her report to NRP had mishandled, was mishandled by police, as noted by Judge Archie Campbell in his 1995 Inquiry into the police investigation of Paul's crimes, thus neglecting any chance of Kirsten French's being discovered at Paul's house. The following day, the couple murdered French before going to Carla's for Easter dinner. So so they just walk in nonchalant and they're like, hey, hi, hey, family. And then, you know, it's. These people live double lives and we have no idea. And I'm going to be going into the BTK killer. He's a serial killer in the U.S. And the life that he lived, like, man, some of these killers are just heartless. It's unbelievable. Oh, Carla testified at her trial that Paul had strangled French for exactly seven minutes while she watched. Paul said Carla beat her with a rubber mallet because she had tried to escape and that French ended up being strangled on a noose tie tied around her neck secured to a hope chest. Immediately thereafter, Carla went to fix her hair. Um, French's nude body was found in a ditch on April 30th, 1992 in Burlington, approximately 45 minutes from St. Catherine's and a short distance from the cemetery where Leslie is buried. She had been washed and her hair had been cut off. It was originally thought that the hair was removed as a trophy, but Carla testified that the hair had been cut to impede identification. Sounds dry.
So the police were calling these rapes um, the Scarborough Rapist Investigation. So Paul and Carla had been questioned by police several times in connection with the investigation. Tammy's death, um, Paul's stalking of Sydney and Patricia. Before the death of Kirsten French, the officer filed a report and on May 12th, 1992, an NRP surgeon and constable interviewed Paul briefly. The officers decided that he was an unlikely suspect, although Paul admitted having been questioned in connection with the Scarborough rapes. It just blows my mind that these people can... It's like Ted Bundy, right? Like, you look at Ted Bundy... And you're like, oh, he's handsome and charismatic and educated. And like, how could he? There's no way. And that's why Ted Bundy had so many young women at his trial and following his case and writing love letters because no one thought that he did this. It's just crazy. Um, three days later, the Green Ribbon Task Force was created to investigate the murders of Leslie and Kirsten. Meanwhile, the couple applied to have their names changed legally from Bernardo and Tamilka to Teal, which Bernardo had taken from the Vivian of the 1988 movie Criminal Law, a serial killer. At the end of May, John Mortile, an acquaintance of Paul, also reported Paul as a possible murder suspect. In December 1992, a Center of Forensic Sciences finally began testing DNA samples provided by Paul three years earlier. On December 27, 1992, Paul severely beat Carla with a flashlight on the limbs, head, and face, claiming that she had been in an automobile accident. The severely bruised Carla returned to work on January 4, 1993, her skeptical co-workers called Carla's parents, who assumed they were rescuing her the following day by physically removing her from the house. Carla went back in, frantically searching for something. Her parents took her to St. Catherine's General Hospital, where her injuries were documented, and she gave a statement to the NRP claiming that she had been a battered spouse and filed charges against Paul. He was arrested, but later on released on his own re reconciliation or whatever. Uh, Carla moved in with relatives in Brampton. So I saw pictures of um, Carla um, bruised and battered. And I don't know if you could get those injuries from a car accident, you guys. Like, she got her ass handed to her, it looked like. And, um, yeah. I'm just... If you have time, Google um, her picture about where she said that she got beat. And it looks bad. Like, she's bruised to shit. But, yeah. So, I think that I am going to do this in two parts, like I said. So I still have um, 
the hearing and evidence and appeals and prison and um, release and all this kind of stuff to go over. Um, so I will be posting that on Wednesday. And yeah, so I hope you guys come back and come and listen to the rest of this because it just gets juicier. They turn on each other and it just gets bad. So yeah, thank you guys and see you soon. Bye. Soundstripe. Soundstripe.
Soundstripe. 